Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an assessment of what Biden can gain from his trip to the Middle East by announcing a US-Israel strategic partnership, which will not win votes from the American right or the progressive left. Then, after meeting with the Saudi crown prince, who along with Netanyahu and other Gulf leaders want Trump back, if Biden does not get MBS to pump more oil, which is likely, coming home empty-handed after bowing before a sociopathic punk will not help his sinking poll numbers. Joining us is John Hoffman, a PhD candidate at George Mason University specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. His work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cipher Brief and Foreign Policy magazine, where his latest article is, The United States Doesn't Need to Recommit to the Middle East. Then with inflation numbers for the month of June at 9.1%, the worst in 40 years, we'll examine whether the growing alarm over inflation will cause the Fed to trigger a recession, which many economists argue is not the solution to fight inflation. Joining us is Dean Baker, Senior Economist and Co-Founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. He is the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer, and he writes the popular economics blog Beat the Press, where his latest article is Can We Have a Wage Price Spiral with Slowing Wage Growth? Then finally, with Texas officials more concerned about the leak of a video showing police doing nothing for one hour and 22 minutes outside the schoolroom in which 19 children and two adults were systematically shot dead, than holding law enforcement to account for their outrageous failures. We will speak with Monica Munoz-Martinez, an award-winning author, educator and public historian. She was born and raised in Uvalde, Texas, and is a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin and a founding member of the nonprofit organization Refusing to Forget and is currently at work on Mapping Violence, a digital research project that recovers histories of racial violence in Texas. Her latest book is The Injustice Never Leaves You, Anti-Mexican Violence in Texas, and we'll discuss her article at the Texas Monthly, Leaders Blamed the Uvalde Shooting on a Mental Health Crisis. Gun violence is making that crisis worse. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, John Hoffman, a PhD candidate at George Mason University, specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. His work has been featured in Middle East policy Open Democracy, The Cipher Brief, and Foreign Policy magazine, where his latest article is, The United States Doesn't Need to Recommit to the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Hoffman. Well, thank you, Ian. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, today, Wednesday in Israel, President Biden is, uh, at least according to the Israeli press, the Jerusalem Post, for example, there's an expectation that the centerpiece of this visit today through Friday of uh, President Biden's to Israel will be the Jerusalem Declaration of a U.S.-Israel Strategic Partnership aimed at containing Iran. And most analysts suggest that it's basically a recommitment to the Abraham Accords. So uh, when you talk about the U.S., doesn't need to recommit to the Middle East. Uh, it seems that that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, it, it would appear that Biden is not only doubling down on America's existing approach to the region, uh, including the Abraham Accords, but he, according to reports and rumors around Washington, he's going even further than Donald Trump. He is considering a formal security commitment to the region, which would 
required the United States to provide certain security guarantees to these actors. And what I think is really significant is rumors right now indicate that these are one-way agreements, one-way meaning that if Israel or if the UAE or Saudi were to be attacked, then the United States would come to their defense. Um, But it does not work the other way around. Well, Israel is not being particularly helpful with the U.S. uh, over Ukraine, right? I mean, they're sitting on the fence, essentially. Exactly. And, you know, this is issues. I think uh, James Dorsey has done a lot of good work kind of talking about Israel's fence sitting. And, you know, this problematic approach with Israel, you know, goes well beyond Ukraine. I mean, it it goes to the provision of uh, faulty intelligence. I mean, look at 2003 in Iraq. This goes to uh, complicating efforts to uh, negotiate with Iran, you know, the assassination of scientists and things like that. And, of course, the the legal statutes that I mentioned in the article regarding the UAE and Saudi Arabia, um, Section 502B of the Foreign Assistance Act and the Leahy Laws, barring the United States from providing assistance to actors that are engaged in gross human rights abuses – um, this, of course, applies to Israel. I mean, now it's, you know, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Betasalem, and the UN Special uh, Rapporteur saying that Israel is engaged in the crime of apartheid. So apparently General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, has been talking with his Israeli counterpart. So what's happening in, a, in the practical sense in terms of a military cooperation if indeed we're heading into this an alliance, uh, as you say, it's a one a one way alliance where the U.S. will come to Israel's defense and the Saudis and the Emiratis as well, and you know whoever signs on to the Abraham Accords, I guess. So they're apparently talking about CENTCOM becoming the umbrella for for both the Saudis, the Emiratis, and uh, Israel. Yes, and unfortunately, that's where really. Ev- everything in terms of public information stops. And with my interviews with uh, Senate staffers on the Hill and others, everyone is in the dark on this matter. Um, Representatives Rohana and Ilhan Omar, who just introduced the amendments to next year's defense spending authorization bill to slow or block such agreements, in their amendments, they state, you know, what 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 is going on here? Because it seems like the only people in the know on this issue are Joe Biden, Millie, Brett McGurk, and Jake Sullivan. It seems like outside of that small small circle, and Blinken, uh, of course. Um, but outside of that small circle, not only is the American public kept in the dark here, it seems like Congress is too. So Biden, in signing this Jerusalem Declaration of U.S. Israel strategic partnership, which again is is largely aimed at Iran. If that's going to be the big centerpiece, I guess probably be announced on Friday. Is the expectation then a political one that is going to help Biden shore up support from the Israel lobby and in this country? Is that is that his motive? I mean, he's always been a very very ardent supporter of Israel. His APAC credentials are pretty good, aren't they? Yes, he has, throughout his entire time as a politician, been very strongly pro-Israel. I was looking at the news this morning, and apparently when uh, Biden got off the plane this morning in Israel, he said verbatim, I am home. So, I mean, that just shows you know, how connected he feels to the Israelis. But in terms of the agreement, I think – what what's so problematic right now is how everyone is in the dark when it comes to the agreement if it's you know largely a political you know i don't want to say grandstanding but if it's largely a political act that says yeah you know we stand by israel you know the united states relationship with israel is is you know firm and strong you know yada 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 that'll be one thing but if there are actually legal guarantees in that agreement, which nobody has seen, no, everybody is in the dark on this. If there are actually legal guarantees in that agreement that will say the United States comes to the defense of Israel if it's ever attacked, then that is, a, a quite frankly, a clear violation 
of Biden's authority as president because only Congress has the authority to ratify treaties. And that's not even getting into the incredibly problematic you know, nature of America's relationship with Israel. And again, I'm speaking with John Hoffman, who's a Ph.D. candidate at George Mason University, specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. His work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cipher Brief, and Foreign Policy Magazine, where his latest article is, The United States Doesn't Need to Recommit to the Middle East. And the Israeli government, of course, is uh, hanging by a thread with uh, Yelapid, now the prime minister, having switched from Naftali Bennett and obviously Netanyahu is trying to make a comeback and Biden certainly doesn't have good relationship with Netanyahu since in his trip as a vice president uh, to Israel, he was humiliated by by Netanyahu, who, you know, he was there to talk about stopping um, West Bank settlements when the very moment he was there, the Israelis announced a huge new settlement on the West Bank. The Obama White House was so furious that they even considered having Joe Biden get on a plane and leave Israel. So isn't that hanging over everything, the idea that not only is Netanyahu trying to make a comeback, so is Donald Trump. So is there a political motive in this, trying to head off both Netanyahu and Trump? Yeah, and you know, that last part you were talking about, the, the Trump piece. Because everything that Biden's doing right now, whether it comes to Israel, whether it comes to Saudi Arabia, the Emiratis, all of them prefer Donald Trump. All of them want to see Donald Trump back in the White House. They they do not want to see Biden remain in the White House because Trump gave them so many, so many overtures. And what is really confusing in in my mind is Right now, at this current time, Biden's approval ratings are are pretty pretty awful, and I, I I think it was the Washington Post, the Monkey Cage blog, uh, Shibli Talhami, he's a a fellow over at the Brookings Institution. They did a poll gauging the popularity of Biden's trip to the Middle East, and it was dramatically low. Uh, Americans are confused why he's doing this at this time. They don't see any tangible benefits for the United States. And also worth mentioning is, you know, Biden may be trying to build off the Abraham Accords, maybe trying to, you know, strike some grand deal with Israel and Saudi Arabia, what have you. But when you look at the Democratic base, there's a lot of criticism of Israel on the left in this country. And, you know, this is not the political right. This is, you know, he will Biden will never get the votes of the Christian evangelicals or anybody like that on the right who are going to vote for Donald Trump, you know, by any means if he runs in 2024. So it's it's very confusing to see why Biden is doing this at this time during, you know, a midterm election year when it's wildly unpopular with the Democratic base. And I understand the argument, you know, oh, we'll win over APAC and things like that. But B- Biden is really, in my opinion, shooting himself in the foot with with his own base of support. Well, the next stage of the trip, of course, is to Saudi Arabia for the Gulf summit. And the expectation is he's going to go hat in hand uh, to Mohammed bin Salman and ask him to turn on the oil spigot. So if he comes away empty-handed, which I think is pretty likely, given that MBS, as you mentioned, wants Trump to come back, and mm-hmm. is probably helping finance that. I mean, after all, he gave $2 billion to uh, Jared Kushner, and I'm sure he'll give a lot more uh, to the Trump campaign you know, up to before 2024. So if Biden doesn't come back from Saudi Arabia with some kind of deal that the Saudis are going to pump more oil and help lower the price of gas, that's not going to look good. So he's he's pretty much on a tightrope here, isn't he? Yeah. And, you know, and that's, you know, what I and a lot of others have raised criticism of saying, you know, this trip will have virtually no impact on the price of oil in the United States. I think the price of oil in the United States has gone down now consecutively for, uh, I think it was like 20 days or something like that. 
And it, that's not due because of his trip to the Middle East, which some people have tried to play it off as that it's due to you know strong fears of a recession and people going to <laughs> going to the gas pump less because it costs so much. Um, but the, Biden, and and this is the criticism that that I've raised and others have raised. You're going hat in hand to a to a dictator who is involved in these heinous crimes who wants nothing more than to see your ouster and Trump put back in. And you're not going to get anything from this trip other than essentially just bending a knee and kissing the ring. So, so that's, that's the frustration right now. It's, it's, I you know, who knows who is telling Biden, you know, whether it's McGurk, whether if it's Jake Sullivan or Blinken, you know, that this is a good idea, but this is, this is just embarrassing, frankly. Well, the last time Jake Sullivan showed up in Saudi Arabia to meet with MBS, apparently they met at one of his palaces on the on the Red Sea, and here they are, the American delegation showing up in their suits and ties, and <laughs> MBS shows up wearing a pair of shorts and flip flops. <laughs> yeah. you know? I mean, he apparently was treated. Sullivan was treated with contempt. But, and this guy's a sociopath and a murderer. I mean, that's, that was made clear by Saeed al-Jabri, the mm-hmm. intelligence chief uh, to uh, Mohammed bin Naif, who was originally the crown prince before he was literally taken in, into a, a luxury hotel prison where he was tortured and had his, had his uh, fortune confiscated by uh, MBS. So I think uh, the portrait on 60 Minutes last Sunday of who, who MBS is is an accurate one. The guy is a sociopath without any human empathy. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, it's because in that meeting that you speak of when uh, when Sullivan went to the Middle East, apparently it, w- it was reported that he brought up uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And then all of a sudden, Mohammed bin Salman just screamed back at Sullivan and started lecturing at him. And, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure what the administration thinks is going on here. Saudi Arabia needs the United States far more than the United States needs Saudi Arabia. There needs to be a, a real reckoning of, of who's in the driver's seat here, what are American interests in the Middle East, and frankly, how Saudi Arabia doesn't serve to advance any of those, especially Mohammed bin Salman, who is just a wild card and a, you know an absolute sociopath, I mean, just a couple of days ago, one of the uh, leading individuals of the Nas party, the the party in exile in Saudi Arabia, was gunned down in Lebanon. And, you know, it, it, it hasn't been determined who did that. But the Nas party is saying, hey, this is uh, incredibly, incredibly sketchy. There's probably only one person who would want to do this. So they continue their campaign of illegalities around the world. And the United States still goes and bends the knee. So. What then is happening uh, on the Iran front? Has the U.S. completely abandoned the JCPOA, getting the Iran nuclear talks back on track? It looks that way. Apparently, the Russians haven't been helpful, which is not surprising. And now we're learning that the Iranians are selling a drone system to the Russians, you know, which apparently has been battle-tested, which they're going to use in, in Ukraine. Yeah, and you know, at least rhetorically, some people in the administration say that they're still open to the JCPOA reaching some sort of accords with with Iran. But it, it really seems like when you look at the tangible policies the administration has pursued, it really seems like they've essentially abandoned all hope. And this was this was part and parcel of the design that Trump had in mind when he withdrew, because when he withdrew. He made sure that it would be near impossible for a subsequent president to re-enter. And you can see that, by the way, that Biden is being portrayed as making all these concessions to Iran and doing all that, when, when really in he's not. He's making concessions to traditional, quote-unquote, American partners like Saudi and the UAE and Israel. Um, so it, it, it really seems like the JCPOA, especially with Israel continuing to, you know, take a very strong line against Tehran, 
it, it, it seems like they've all but abandoned the, the JCPOA. But just in closing, will this new Jerusalem Declaration of U.S.-Israel Strategic Partnership, which Biden is expected to announce and is supposed to be the big deal about his trip to Israel, does it involve the U.S. nuclear umbrella? I mean, what's happening with Iran is, as long as the JCPOA is not in place, and Trump killed it, obviously, the Iranians have been furiously stockpiling and, and producing fissile material. They apparently have already reached the point where they at least have one bomb, fuel for one bomb. So this is an arms race, a nuclear arms race underway, What's the situation vis-a-vis the U.S. nuclear umbrella? After all, Israel has, one, I think, the fifth or sixth largest arsenal in the world. Yeah, and, and that's a really good point because with everything that's happening, if the United States were to extend a U.S. you know security guarantee to Israel, Saudi, or the UAE, and God forbid if this nuclear umbrella was was extended to these actors, that would be like taking a raging fire and already pouring more gasoline on it. The the idea that this would not raise tensions dramatically with Iran, I mean it 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 it's almost it's almost confusing to sit back and look at how they think that this could actually be constructive, especially at a time when at least rhetorically they say that they're trying to reach some sort of agreement with Iran extending American security guarantees to Saudi, the UAE, or Israel at this time would certainly not <laughs> would not serve as an incentive to bring Iran to the table. It would serve as an incentive for Iran to double down on what they're already doing. Well, John Hoffman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Of course, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with John Hoffman, who is a PhD candidate at George Mason University, specializing in Middle East geopolitics and political Islam. His work has been featured in Middle East Policy, Open Democracy, The Cipher Brief, and Foreign Policy Magazine, where his latest article is The United States Doesn't Need to Recommit to the Middle East. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining whether the growing alarm over inflation will cause the Fed to trigger a recession, which many economists argue is not the solution to fight inflation. Most things I worry about never happen anyway. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now are Dean Baker, a senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. He's the author of The End of Loser Liberalism, Making Markets Progressive, and Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. And he writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where his latest article is, Can We Have a Wage Price Spiral with Slowing Wage Growth? Welcome to Background Briefing, Dean Baker. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us. And a lot of alarm is being expressed at the June uh, inflation figures. Uh, Prices surged 9.1% in June. And obviously, that is the last thing that Biden needs. And of course, the... um, Republicans are going to be jumping on this, and uh, the press is talking about it as though the sky is falling. So are we really in a situation now, Dean, where we'll have to have a recession in order to deal with inflation, when there's surely better ways to deal with inflation than creating a recession? Well, the first thing we have to do is understand what the inflation is. And I'll I'll be, you know, totally straight. I was surprised. This was a worse report than I expected. I mean, some of it we knew and we knew gas prices were going to be up a lot. That was a really big factor. Um, Food prices, again, we knew those were going to be up a lot. But I expected some of the other things to go the other way. Uh, New car prices uh, rose by uh, one percent, seven tenths of a percent. Um, I expected them to be flat, maybe even fall. Used car prices jumped 1.6%. We had indexes of private private indexes of car, used car prices showing them falling. So it was worse than I expected. There's no doubt about it. But the story that 
you have a recession that we need a recession and bring down prices. That's that's a case where it's being driven by a wage price spiral. And I've been following the wage data very closely. It's not a case of wages spiraling upward. They're actually slowing. Wage growth is slowing. So raising interest rates to combat a wage price spiral that is not there doesn't make a lot of sense. So there's no doubt bad news. Um, we need inflation to come down. But trying to do that by raising interest rates, having a lot of unemployment and for- forcing wage growth to slow, that's a very backward way of doing it. That's not the issue today. But in terms of a wage price spiral, I, my understanding is that the prices are spiking more than the wages, that corporate America is taking advantage of inflation and all the concerns about inflation to do some price gouging. Is that an accurate observation? Well, I don't know if that's really, I mean, call what you like. Cor- corporate America is always trying to make money. So, yeah, they're, they're making money. But um, just to take the most obvious case, gas prices rose because we don't have enough gas. We don't have enough oil. Um, now, that situation's improved. More oil is coming online. Um, we will see lower gas prices in the index. I mean, we're already seeing them. So, um, but we will see them in the index in July. So, I don't. You know, companies are trying to make money, but it's responding to situations in the real world. Where where I am somewhat um, baffled, I, I was mentioning before, I expected some improvement in, in the June report in certain areas. We have a lot of areas where prices typically fall. They're either flat or fall. So these are things like apparel, household furnishings, appliances. If you look back, they're generally close to zero in terms of the year-over-year inflation and often maybe a small negative. They fall half a percent or one percent. Those rose a lot in the last year, and that was the supply chain story. This was all the stuff sitting off the the, the West Coast, and that was, that was understandable. Prices would rise. Now, the supply chain issues have been not completely resolved, but largely resolved. We had data on inventories that inventories are actually very high right now. And you have major retailers like Target and Amazon complaining. We have all the stuff we can't sell. I expected to see some improvement there, but we didn't see that. Apparel prices rose eight tenths of a percent last month. Same for other things like furnishings. So I, I have to say, I don't know what's going on there. Are they gouging? Perhaps, but... You know, my guess is we will see those declines because if you have a glut of inventory and your competitors have a glut of inventory, kind of stupid to raise your prices. I mean, maybe it makes you feel good, but you're not making money if it's sitting there and not, no one's buying it. But in general, triggering a recession is not the solution to fight inflation. That's Is that the argument you're making? Yeah, I mean, again, if we're back in the 1970s where we're seeing, you know, inflation goes up 5%, workers demand higher wages, they go up 6 wages go up 6%, then prices go up 7%, you could tell that story. Again, I, I don't think, you know, the classic story, Paul Volcker sent interest rates to 20%, we got 11% unemployment, not quite, almost 11%, and it did bring inflation down. So you could tell that story. But that doesn't fit the facts we're seeing today. So jacking up interest rates a lot to push the unemployment rate much higher, force workers to take pay cuts, that's a very backward way to try and attack the inflation we're seeing today. So this is the worst rise in 40 years, right? That's right. So you'd have to go back to the beginning of the 1980s when we were coming out of the wage, the wage price spiral in the 70s that, to see anything comparable. We had inflation's been largely under control, really, for, you know, four decades now. So I mentioned that obviously this is a nightmare for Biden. Uh, He's already, his poll numbers are sinking, and they're about 33%. Is there anything he can do? Well, there's smaller things he could do. I mean, he, he might be able to, I mean, what he could do with executive action, he might be able to do some things to reduce drug prices, um, particularly in Medicare, um, lower drug prices. He could try to do things, again, this won't have an immediate dividend, but I think it'd be a great thing to do, try and make it easier to convert uh, vacant office space to to residential. So you have uh, downtown New York, Manhattan has a huge amount of vacant office space. If you can convert some of that to residential, that would put downward pressure on rents. Um, Encouraging work from home, which means less commuting, less demand for gas, but probably more importantly, People could work remotely. You could have a lot of people leave high price areas like where you're at or New York or San Francisco and live in lower priced parts of the country, which is great for them. It's great, reduces pressure on rents in the high price areas, and it's, it's a boon to the economy in the places they move to. 
So the things like that, now, will they have a payoff in two, three, four months? Uh, not much. I mean, drug prices could, but but the other things that he might be able to do, you're talking longer term, you know, maybe a year or two years before you start to see any impact. So when Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, says in reacting to this new data, I think we're peaking. I think we're going we're going to be going down from here. Is that wishful thinking or is there any indication? No, there's lots of good reasons for saying that. I mean, we have a lot of data that suggests that prices should be, you know, the rate of inflation, I should say, should be falling. And again, in some cases, the the prices themselves will actually be falling. We've seen some of that. So I was mentioning before items that rose rapidly in price. Television's been the example I use. Television prices rose almost 10% from March of 221 to August of 221. Since then, they've been in a free fall, and they're lower than they were in in March of last year. So I think- And, we and that's see- a supply chain issue, is it? Because exactly, most of them are made exactly. in, in South Korea, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so that supply chain issue has been resolved with televisions. I think we're seeing, we will see the same thing in, in other areas. Uh, one of the big items, of course, cars, I mentioned before prices uh, rose a lot in June. We are seeing the, the manufacturers, again, we're seeing this in the world, so this isn't just speculating. They're producing a lot more cars. They still haven't fully recovered to their normal production, but they're getting there. And that should put downward pressure on prices because you know we've seen this double-digit increase in car prices. It doesn't cost that much more to produce a car today than it did a year and a half ago. What it was is that you had a shortage because of the semiconductor issue. That's getting resolved. So I don't think Pelosi's being unreasonable in saying that. It's not wishful thinking. There's a lot of things you could point to in the economy. But I'll be the first to say, I thought this was going to be resolved much sooner. I thought June was going to be a better month. So I've been wrong. But again, there are things you could point to in the economy that suggest that inflation's peaking and we're likely to see much better news July, August, the rest of summer and into the fall. And getting closer to the elections, right, in November. That's right. Um, how it plays out, you know, uh, you know, do people remember back what happened in May, June? I mean, you know, people, of course, are looking at the prices themselves. They're not looking at the, the, the index. And in the case of gas prices, for example, the index showed a big rise in June. Everyone was buying gas, which is most people. Gas prices have fallen hugely in the last month. They're down 30 or 40 cents. So, you know, are they upset because the index went up in June or are they happy because the prices are down 40 cents? Now, they're still much higher than they were a year ago. But, you know, the direction change, that's been very good. And again, who knows what's going to happen with Russia, Ukraine. But my best guess is that's like that downward movement's likely to continue. Well, Dean Baker, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Dean Baker, who's a senior economist and co-founder of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, a progressive economic think tank based in Washington, D.C. He's the author of Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. And he writes the popular economics blog, Beat the Press, where his latest article is, Can We Have a Wage Price Spiral with Slowing Wage Growth? We're going to take a restation break back discussing how Texas officials are more concerned about a leak of a video showing police doing nothing for one hour and 22 minutes outside a schoolroom in which 19 children and two adults were systematically shot dead than they are about holding law enforcement to account for their outrageous failures. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Monica Munoz-Martinez, who is an award-winning author, educator, public historian, and active participant in developing solutions that address racial injustice, a national authority on the history of race, and a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin. She was born and raised in Texas and is a founding member of the nonprofit organization Refusing to Forget, and isn't currently at work on Mapping Violence, a digital research project that covers histories of racial violence in Texas. And her latest book is The Injustice Never Leaves You, Anti-American Violence in Texas. 
Angie has an article at the Texas Monthly, Leaders Blame the Uvalde Shooting on a Mental Health Crisis, Gun Violence is Making That Crisis Worse. Welcome to Background Briefing, Monica Munoz-Martinez. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Monica. And um, there's been a release of the video of the police standing outside the door of the uh, school room in which 19 children and two teachers were systematically murdered by this young man with an assault rifle. And that's, of course, I think the, the tape is about an hour and 22 minutes. So that gives you an idea of how long uh, the the suffering must have gone on inside that room. And, and in your article, you mentioned uh, one of the survivors and the mental health uh, consequences of what she, of the trauma that she was involved in. And, and you also point out that uh, as underfunded as uh, mental health care in Texas is, uh, that recently Governor Abbott took money away. He cut $500 million in programs in terms of mental health and funded the Operation Lone Star, which is this uh, border policing operation that he he invested in, and half of the cut, $211 million, came from the budget of the Texas Health and Human Services Commission. So I take it that there's a sort of backlash now uh, prompted by uh, the guilt of their, their previous missteps. So how, do, how would you characterize the current situation in terms of mental health services in the state of Texas? Well, they're, they're abysmal. I should say that one thing that was missing from the introduction is that I was in from Valley. It's my hometown. I was born and raised there, attended public schools all the way through, you know, head start pre-K all the way through uh, high school. Um, and so it, it's a tragedy that has continued, unfortunately. You know, what's on display in the aftermath of the Valley massacre is a set of tragedies. On the one hand, you know, it's all too often that when, when the actions or inactions of law enforcement come under scrutiny and under investigation, there's just this unbroken record of U.S. history of people in power trying to protect law enforcement rather than prioritize the victims and their families. And so what we have seen in Uvalde is that there's really a set of three tragedies. On the one hand, there's the failure to protect teachers and students on May 24th. So that's one heartbreaking tragedy that, that we're still learning about. The, the second tragedy is the failure by local, state, and federal officials to be transparent with families. And so that's another tragedy of cruelty, that instead of healing, instead of grieving and mourning, um, families, the parents, the grandparents, the, the aunts and uncles of these children and of these teachers, the sisters of these teachers are having to attend school board meetings, having to attend city council meetings to ask questions that have not been answered about basic questions about their loved ones. But then there's a third continued failure to care for the survivors and for their families that lost loved ones and for the community at large. And this breakdown in trust has resulted in a breakdown in families being able to receive the, the mental health support, the financial support that they need, and for the community at large. Um, and so, you know, just as eight different law enforcement agencies failed on the 24th to protect those children and teachers, there are local, there's a failure by local, state, and federal agencies today that are failing to step in and lead an organized outreach campaign in Uvalde to make sure that the available resources are reaching families in need. Well, it does seem since the tragedy happened, and we had that press conference led by Governor Abbott, at which his challenger for the governorship, Beto O'Rourke, challenged him and said, "This is this is on you." and the mayor of Uvalde screaming at Beto to shut up, etc. He is making a big deal out of the leak of this tape being a terrible thing, and uh, so is the city councilman Ernest Chip King III, who said that releasing the footage was chicken bleep, and he criticizes the media. And then, and this was in front of local parents of the of the children, many of whom were killed, the one member of the audience spoke up and said, what about the cops? Are they chicken bleep? And, of course, uh, he didn't get much of a response on that. So 
Is it fair to say that since day one, that authority starting with Governor Abbott through the law enforcement leaders, through the mayor, etc., they've been covering up and covering their backsides? Well, the, there's been a lack of transparency, and the parents, the families, have not received answers to their basic questions. And, and what hasn't been acknowledged is that the release of this footage has come because the parents and the families have been asking for answers. And instead, the lack of transparency by local, state, and federal officials and law enforcement agencies has left the victims that actually survived the shooting, the massacre, as the only voices of truth. And so just recently, there's been interviews revealed, you know, and, and ongoing of, of children that were in the classroom, of the teacher that survived, that are sharing um, details so that because it's one of the only ways that families are getting access to the truth. And that burden is a grotesque consequence of the failure to be accountable to the families that are suffering with unimaginable grief. And so this ongoing failure has meant that the families don't trust these investigations. And so they've asked to review evidence themselves. And so they've asked to see body cam footage and uh, the hallway footage. And finally, it was going to be released to them on Sunday privately. Um, and this leak has meant that the world now has access to this footage. So we should be deeply troubled that these parents, to seek answers, to believe to learn what happened, that they need to start, that they need to review evidence themselves. You know, that's a task that could be traumatizing in its in its own right. And now that this has been leaked, you know, there are families who are in Washington, DC, who were lobbying Congress for strict firearm legislation. And they had to interrupt their efforts to do things like call family in Uvalde and say, please do not watch the news. Please do not let our kids on their phones, watch these videos. And Kimberly Rubio, who was one of the parents who testified in front of Congress for strict firearm legislation um, in June, you know, she described this as a, as a sense of never-ending pain because they aren't learning the truth. They aren't learning uh, facts from briefings. They're having to learn them from leaks and from social media. And it's just, it, it shows the sort of depth of, of, of work to go for these families to actually be able to heal. They aren't able to privilege their grief and their and to mourn. They are they are having to 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 push for investigation, to push for answers, and to push for accountability. And so as as somebody who has is from Uvalde, who, who knows how hard it is for people to access mental health resources, this is a a community that is being pushed and exposed to further trauma. Um, and there's research that shows that the institutional betrayal, it intensifies pain and suffering. Um, and so, so really, you know, there's, there's the need for families to be able to have access to, to the truth. Um, but, but there's been a failure also in being able to, to, to organize outreach um, to families so that they get the care that they need because they're not prioritizing their health. Um, they can't because they have these basic questions. As a historian who studies histories of racist violence and the long legacies of massacres, one of the most haunting questions that families live with is the basic question of, you know, did their loved ones suffer? Did you know, I think about Norma Longoria Rodriguez, who's from San Antonio, Texas. She's a retired school teacher, and she helped preserve the memory of her grandfather and great-grandfather that were murdered by Texas Rangers and a posse in 1915. And one of the unanswered questions that she lives with it, that's most haunting is, did they die immediately? Did they suffer? And those are that's the basic question that many of these families are still asking. And could they have been saved? And so until those questions are answered, um, and they can't begin to heal. And so they are trying to answer those questions themselves by asking for evidence to be released. And unfortunately, it being leaked um, is, is forcing them to relive uh, some, painful, some painful experiences. Um, one parent explained that it felt like she was reliving May 24th all over again when the governor uh, released the, the, the tally of number of children that had died before the parents had even been notified. Um, and so it's this sense of this never-ending pain um, that is, is, is 
causes panic and fear for families who care for these these families in Uvalde. And again, I'm speaking with Monica Munez-Martinez, who is an award-winning author, educator, public historian, and active participant in developing solutions that address racial injustice. She's a national authority on the history of race and a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin and was born and raised in Uvalde, Texas. Her latest book is The Injustice Never Leaves You, Anti-Mexican Violence in Texas, and she has an article at the Texas Monthly, Leaders Blame the Uvalde Shooting on a Mental Health Crisis. Gun violence is making that crisis worse. But we all recall when the horrible massacre happened that the police, who we turn turn out to have been standing outside the door heavily armed with ballistic shields and assault rifles, etc., waited for an hour and 22 minutes. Meanwhile, outside, desperate parents were arrested by the police and handcuffed. So it seems that from day one they've been trying to find scapegoats, and now they're scapegoating the press for the obvious failures of law enforcement. And when when do you think we'll have a have a reckoning there? I, you know, the the, the question of accountability is one that, that everybody in Uvalde is still asking. You know, who, when when is there going to be accountability? And um, you know, that there one thing that has been noted is that the name of one police officer was released by Texas DPS. But we know that there were at least eight law enforcement agencies in Uvalde and at Robb Elementary. And so this is a, a, a failure that, that extends far beyond just the Uvalde school police department, you know, and, and the Uvalde local police. But there are multiple agencies that bear responsibility for not um, trying to make efforts to save those children and those teachers. And so that, you know, some of the parents who have been tirelessly in their darkest moments of grief, going to school board meetings and going to city council meetings to ask questions about accountability, those are some of the same parents that were arrested by law enforcement. And so, you know, they've asked, can we protest? you know, for the release of this information, for the release of this evidence. And some of them have said, if we protest, we worry we will be arrested. And so it comes back to, again, what we're seeing on display here is that, you know, there, there have been, there's this, this, this long tradition of protecting law enforcement rather than prioritizing the victims and their families. And so, as I said before, this is, this is, this goes far, extends far deeper than just the tragedy of the 24th and the failure of law enforcement to act quickly, the failure or continued failure after mass shootings to pass restrictive firearm legislation. Um, but what we're seeing is that it uh, is a tragedy of cruelty. Um, to these families, for them not to have answers to their questions and not to see accountability more than a month later. And and some of my, you know, in in writing this op-ed with my co-author, Dr. Lauren Gamble, um, you know, at the heart of this is also the suffering of people and the impact on people's livelihoods, on their mental health, um, that, that is an outcome of these, these, our failure, um, our state and federal laws and policies that expose children to unthinkable violence, um, the reality that the medical infrastructure doesn't exist to meet the mental health needs after these mass shootings, um, the, but, but that also that, you know, if people think um, that healing is happening, um, this is a, there's a third tragedy of these families um, not receiving the care that they need um, and not receiving the answers to their questions. But earlier we were talking about how the state is among the worst in the country in terms of mental health resources, particularly for children, and that $211 million out of $500 million programs were cut in order to divert money to Operation Lone Star, which was sort of basically grandstanding on the southern border. Half of that money, again, $211 million, came from the budget of the Texas Health and Human Services Commission, and then since the tragedy, they've actually sent money from Operation Lone Star uh, to Uvalde, $3.3 million grant this February. But what about the broader statistics that you also cite in your article, Monica, that 19% of kids in Texas live in poverty in 
Uvalde County, it's 31% of children live in poverty, while 73% of students are considered economically disadvantaged. Is there any focus on that now? Well, there's some people are trying to do that. And so there's, you know, it, it's been breathtaking, uh, the, the lack of a coordinated outreach to families. Um, on the one hand, yes, this is a community that it was a mental health desert, you know, long before this massacre. It was under-resourced by the state and by the federal government, you know, for decades. Um, and so the kinds of infrastructure, me mental health, medical infrastructure that is needed for a community to be able to rebuild and respond in the aftermath of this massacre, just it doesn't exist. And so people are trying to to build it, but the the mental health resources in Texas um, are are not sufficient to meet the state needs. So when you have these kinds of massacres, it puts further strain on the infrastructure. Um, in a place like Uvalde, though, it's not just the physical injuries that need to be healed, but also mental the, the impact of firearm violence on mental health is complex, um, not just for adults, but for children. And so what we are seeing is that there's a need not only to make sure that people have access to resources, but you need a public education campaign because, um, you know, growing up in Uvalde, I mean, I, I, I've seen this with family members, with friends, that when they needed access to mental health resources, they had to, that they were faced with these huge challenges, things like having to find uh, services in San Antonio, driving an hour and a half to San Antonio, um, having, you know, insurance, having the money to pay for gas and to pay for food. Um, and so there's efforts now to bring these resources, but because there, it, the, the trust in the community has uh, uh, the trust in local officials, the trust in state officials has just been so eroded. Um, it's difficult to reach families. And so you actually need, um, you know, an organized campaign. And, and there has been, you know, the mayor that you referenced earlier, actually that the, 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 the need is so dire that that mayor <laughs> coordinated with a democratic state representative to try to ask, for the Texas governor to replace the district attorney from leading the, the, the recovery outreach. You know, Uvalde was declared a disaster area. And so, you know, funding and aid is, is being directed to the town now. Um, but because, again, there's lack of trust in, in this district attorney who's leading these investigations and is seen as suppressing evidence, um, not answering families' questions, um, it has it has created even more challenges and obstacles for people to to access the resources that are available. But but again, this is the needs in Uvalde. Um, there's there's immediate needs, there's short term needs, and there's going to be long term needs. But you really need you know I think about the failures after Hurricane Katrina um, in the recovery response, and Uvalde is another. <laughs> Uh, disaster um, where we are seeing the failure to meet the needs of the community um, and to get them the resources that they need immediately. And, and so uh, really, you know, we're calling for um, intervention to, to take over, federal intervention to take over the outreach um, campaigns in Uvalde. But just in closing, Monica, they, Abbott and, and the Republican establishment that runs Texas and the recent Republican state convention passed all kinds of incredibly reactionary policies, which, you know, they seem to be more focused on the fear of transgender children, which are extremely rare cases to begin with, than they are about the basic um, realities uh, that Texas is rated 46 in the nation for overall child well-being, according to the Annie e. Casey Foundation. And in terms of access to mental health care, Texas is ranked 51st in the nation behind all other states and Washington, D.C. So I just don't understand. I mean, Abbott and company can't have it both ways. They blame the school massacre not on guns, which they've made incredibly easy to carry guns and to open carry in Texas. They instead have blamed it all on, on mental health. At the same time, they're not providing resources for mental health. I've just explained, read the statistics in your article about how far, how low Texas is ranked in terms of mental health with the rest of the country. So they can't have it both ways. That's right. And, 
you know, there's the 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 only way to address this is to address firearm legislation. Um, you know, the bipartisan gun legislation that was signed by President Biden in June doesn't go far enough. Um, there's a, abundant evidence that shows that strict firearm laws save lives. And so that's the only way to address, you know, the people who are being shot today and the day after that and the day after that. And so until we enact better policy, these kinds of events and gun violence are, are going to continue. And as I said before, we just don't have the infrastructure to be able as a society to respond to the medical and mental health needs of communities. And so we just can't withstand this kind of trauma with the resources that are available because it's just not enough. But at the same time, there is research that shows that children and people are resilient. And so if they have enough resources, abundant psychosocial resources, um, that, that children are resilient. And when they feel connected to their communities, when they feel safe, when they feel trust, when they have trusted elected officials, then they can heal. Um, but we, you know, in a, in a place like Uvalde, that doesn't exist yet. And, and so um, as a society, we have to address firearm legislation, but we also have to pour resources into the mental health crisis and help communities like Uvalde heal. Um, and as we've, as we've discussed, there are a whole set of, of challenges, but unfortunately, some of those that are being created are being created by the people in power who refuse to give basic answers and who refuse to bring accountability for the failures of law enforcement. Um, and so, and so this is a, a you know, a, as I said before, just three sets of tragedies um, that are devastating to see happen, to watch happen. Um, and it's, and these families and the, the community of Valley deserves better. Monica Munez Martinez, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Monica Munez-Martinez, who is an award-winning author, educator, public historian, and active participant in developing solutions that address racial injustice, a national authority on the history of race. She's a professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin and was born and raised in Uvalde, Texas, and is a founding member of the nonprofit organization Refusing to Forget and is currently at work on Mapping Violence, a digital research project that recovers histories of racial violence in Texas. Her latest book is The Injustice Never Leaves You, Anti-Mexican Violence in Texas, and she has an article at the Texas Monthly, Leaders Blame the Uvalde Shooting on a Mental Health Crisis, Gun Violence is Making That Crisis Worse. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305